there's an improper view of God, an unbiblical view. Uh, it's called deism, and basically deism is this. It's been around a while, um, and you probably more struggle with it than you realize. I've heard something to it, but deism basically believes this about God or says that God sort of uh, winds up the clock and lets the clock run. He created the world and kind of sets things in motion, but he's not involved with it. He just kind of watches from it, and will kind of Superman come in and help when he needs to, but he's not involved in the things that he created. He just created it. When I was a young uh, a youth, uh, when I was young, my father and I have talked about this now, and he's grown in his faith as I've I, and so, uh, but it was one that he kind of uh, told me about, uh, he espoused to me, and this is how, and, and, and others did, this is how it came to me in the, this form. Um, Shane, which I was, was an athlete, played a lot of sports, listen Shane, God doesn't care about your sports, he's got bigger fish to fry. He's got way more, more important things to do than to worry about you and your football games and your basketball games. And, um, and so as a young man, I was like, okay. I mean, that, that's, that's a course, right? There's something in my life God didn't care about. And uh, so as I navigated that, um, uh, eventually, uh, as I lived on this world, uh, I realized, which you can happen without ever hearing this worldview, but eventually sports kind of clung to sports in a way. God didn't care about it, so I, but I cared about it, and this sort of became my identity. Um, I measured myself. My worth uh, was found in how well I do well. If you're six foot five and large like me, sports is, wow, what can you do and that kind of stuff. It just becomes your identity. And still affects me today. So I wrongly related to it. Uh, I didn't have a good view of God, and I wrongly related to the sports and the small things that I thought didn't matter in, God, in my, world, my life from God. And so, um, and I still struggle with that today, my identity being attached to sports. Just this week, Friday, after I got done, uh, I found out all my family was busy, and Brittany and Madison were up in Louisville, and people had plans or whatever. And so it's afternoon, it's about 5.30, so I sneak off to play some golf. And um, which I love to do. It's pretty, right? What a beautiful week, some beautiful days. Finally, the spring. So in golf, uh, oftentimes I was playing by myself. When you're playing golf, you will, if there's a group in front of you and you're a single or it's afternoon, it's kind of laid back, they will let you play through, meaning you can go on through, we'll step to the side and you can play through and go on because we're playing, you're playing faster than us. Well, so this group lets me go through and I hit my ball and I hit a good one, but then I get down there and now you have an audience. Every time you play through, you got to play in front of everybody, right? Well, guess what? I'm nervous. And, uh, and so, sure enough, uh, I had a terrible shot right in front of me, and so I go on through. Well, then I play again, and they were a group of guys who were just kind of hopping around the course. They weren't playing sequential. So I have to come by them again, and uh, I pull up to this, uh, another, another hole, and they move to the side to let me play through. And this time, I hit a great shot. It was from 215 yards, and I hit it right about 10 or 12 feet by the pin. And, and so then I felt... I'm in BDC. My worth and my identity, I still struggle when I played bad, felt a little down when I've hit it good too much. It's still there. The whispers of deism and the path it kind of set me on to think that God doesn't care about the things going on in my life, whether big or small. Um, well, the final message, uh, one of the commentators, uh, Phil Riken, I really enjoyed one of his commentaries. He says this about Ecclesiastes. We are coming to the last, this is the final sermon. We're looking at the final verses, the last five verses of it. 
And, um, and he says this, this is his quote, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, which I know that's a double negative, right? But the final message of the Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, therefore, but that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will have eternal significance. That's where Ecclesiastes lands. And it starts off, so you'll see here the verses. When it started off, when Ecclesiastes started off in verse uh, chapter 1, Verse 2 and 3, it says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, meaning everything is vain. And verse 3, it says, what does man gain by the toil? So I'm going to show you that if, even if you try to uh, have gain and work and find profit, you cannot find profit anywhere in this world. It is vanity of vanities. As a matter of fact, in our chapter, we're starting at verse 9, but the last verse before this, verse 8, in the conclusion here, we'll talk about that in a minute, but go, the last words before uh, we get to our passage this morning, it says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so the chapter, the book actually has just ended and is talking about aging and death in verses one through seven. In verse eight, uh, which we had a great, our studies had a great discussion around that. We went really long <laughs> about the aging and what aging does to us. It's an incredible uh, passage there. Um, but in the end, we turn, it says we return to dust, and it's, life is vanity. So those are the, um, that's what some call like a, a, the style of that, where you state something repeated at the end was a, an ancient way of communicating and writing, which was inclusio, was the name of it, where they started and finished with the last thing. And then we get these last five verses that kind of look back at everything the preacher has talked about in the previous 12 verses, and the conclusion is everything matters. It's not that nothing matters, actually Everything matters. Right now, I just want you to know, my guess is you wonder, does it matter how I drive home today and the conversation I have in the car? And my guess is if you're like me, some of you wonder, I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere in this populous town of 15,000 and 30,000 in our county, and it's rural, and we're, I mean, we're here, and there's 8 billion people in the world. Does God care about the small things I do today? And if we don't believe that, then you'll wind up like I did with my deistic views. You'll have a hard time relating in this world to the things of this world. But Ecclesiastes ends and says everything matters. Now, it doesn't create pressure. Let me just say that on the front end. It doesn't mean, oh, no, <laughs> everything. Because it doesn't create that. What it creates it, and it seems to create and should create is relief. And if it creates pressure, then you've overextending how things matter. Now things, the things that in life have become everything to you instead of God. But all things matter. And we looked last week at why. It was in verse 14. It's because he's judged, that he will judge all. All things, every hidden thing in that is that everything matters. Why? Because God is judged. Today, we're going to add to that and finish with this. The reason it also matters is because God is king. And really, those two things go hand in hand. He could never judge everything unless he was king and could bring everything to the point of being judged. They work hand in hand. He is the king and the judge. And we'll look at that. Today. And here's here, let me just read. This is what the rest of the scriptures, this is what that tells us. This is what Jesus, this is what Paul said about Jesus 
And this is what we learn. Here's why everything matters is king. Why does, why does it mean everything matters? Look at Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image. He's talking about Jesus himself here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. Do you see that? Why does everything matter? Because Jesus is ruling every single thing. You would have to say that life is vanity and say to him, you're vain, God, because you're ruling it. He is ruling all things, and that is a profound Deep things, you notice how it says there in Colossians 1, he created it, and then he rules it, and he's involved with it. There's the deist, it's not deism. It says that everything at this very moment is held together. Why? Because of him. The molecules that make that metal on the chair, the molecules are being held by him. The billions of cells in each of our bodies, in the eight billion people, are being held together at this moment. They're working and being held together. The taste buds that Kevin talked about, 500,000 that we all have on our tongues, each with a unique purpose and taste, all of those are being held together and functioning. Why? Because he's ruling and holding them together. Without him, they would all cease. You cannot conclude life is vain if you worship the living God. It feels vain sometimes. It can wear you out. But Ecclesiastes lands and says, yes, there's a king. And whatever feels unjust about what happened on this missionary journey and the forward and your life and mine, it all matters and it'll be examined by God. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 58, the sting of death is the power of sin. Uh, says this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's what Paul said to Corinth. said, remember, nothing you're doing is in vain, even if nobody sees it. It is not in vain. And so there is great great hope and uh, because of um, this book. And so we'll, as we work through seeing God as king, these final verses here, we will, um, we will look at the words. Our outline will be this, the words, the transition, and the conclusion. The words, the transition, and the conclusion. All right? Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you help us as we transition this? Would you bring Ecclesiastes that is such a thoughtful book by you to us? Would you bring it to a place to where, um, to where we really land at the same place that I believe that the writer and the Holy Spirit, you wanted us to land. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, we'll look at the words here. And this we're looking from verses 9 through 11. You see that. Um, it's talking about the words. And in verse 9, it says, besides being wise, the preacher has taught the people knowledge and weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words. You see that, of delight and uprightly. He wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goals. You see the words is mentioned three times. So one way to finish here is what do we do with all the words that the preacher has given us? What do we do with those? And what I want you to see is um, 
Um, it's a... Uh, uh, First of all, just that all he took, you could tell he gave great care and thought to what he prepared for us. And that he was working and what the teacher was saying, and he and, and, and even arranged them in a way that would bring be truthful and loving and delightful to us. So the first thing just to know about these words is that they were very logical and they were truth and oriented. Now, they weren't linear logic, which is what we like as Americans. It was more logical into their form and type, but there was great logic and thoughtfulness. Uh, to it. It also had tons of artistic beauty to it. If you were to really study and get down to the deep dive of what this style was and what the debate was like in the philosophers of the day, this was a beautifully written uh, group of words that was given. As a matter of fact, I didn't write those down today. There are numbers of quotes by famous people uh, who say that they, would, that they were non-Christians and say this is their favorite, uh, one of their favorite pieces of, uh, uh, of writing to read. And it was written very eloquently in a beautiful beautiful way. And uh, so the words were put together for us in that way. It's why, you know, uh, there's a time for seasons, those famous words that people put. There's a song written about it, right? A time for change. And people use that, use those words oftentimes in marriages and ceremonies. So there's some artistry to it. And so um, it's beautiful. But then also what I want to draw your attention to is that the words he put together were words of delight. Now, what's interesting is that most people feel like it's just such a just a Debbie Downer, like dark, dark uh, book. And yet there's lots of delight and enjoy and, and, and a push to enjoy the gifts of God and what he's given you. And so there's delightfulness. So he was framing these things in a way that you would, might enjoy them. And if there was goodness here, and you would see that God is a giver and see God as a king and a God who is a judge. I mean, you see that, that there, these words were made to be good. God, uh, if you go back to the, uh, the creation story, there was only one prohibition in the creation story, right? Don't eat the fruit. Everything else was blessing, blessing, blessing. The first words we learned in Genesis 1:26 is God blessed them, and he gave them a task to do. He's not withholding from his people. And even the commandment to not eat the fruit was a kind gesture to protect us from something we couldn't handle. It wasn't a withholding gift. God does not withhold from you. And Ecclesiastes has goodness to it. And if you don't want to walk away from that, that he's saying that was, there were words of delight that we would enjoy. But they were also words of truth. And notice in verse 11 that the words of the wise are like goads, like the, and a cattle prod. That they can, they're a little painful and they push you to maybe think about things that you don't want to think about or face things that you don't want to face that are realities in this world. And so they're words that were a little prodding. Um, and the, but the wise, uh, the words of the wise can be prodding, but at the same time, if you get really good words, notice what it says in verse 11, they are nails firmly fixed that are collected same, meaning these words can nail things down for you and bring stability. They really can. For me, I would say personally, this has become one of, maybe if not my favorite book of the Bible. I feel like God really has, there's a thoughtfulness to it of the things that I feel and experience. And I've loved, listen, and, and there's some grayness to it, some of the things and what it means, but, I, but at the same time, I also feel like it's okay that things look like time and chance and that things go bad, and it's just okay to see those things and admit it. That's anchoring. Not everything is lemonade. And so the words were that. But then the most important thing, uh, probably the words that I want you to see is notice in verse 11. They are given by the one shepherd. Now, 
some don't think, some theologians don't think maybe there's different ways it could have been like Solomon. Kings were thought of as Solomon made this the shepherd. But the majority of people believe, and I, I, I believe this, that this actually, this one shepherd, it's capitalized in our passage, it's capitalized in most translations because this idea, this idea of the shepherd is rarely used in the Old Testament. And it's used over in Ezekiel and a couple other places, and it actually is probably referring, most would say the wisest thing to believe about this passage is it's referring to God. And so that ultimately the words that came to you and I came from the one shepherd. He, the shepherd, I mean, if we could go into the metaphor, the most powerful, I think sometimes, metaphor in the Bible, one of the most consistent and biggest and large passage about God, Jesus, being our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And so these words, as confusing at times and weighty and even like, whoa, that's pretty dark or seems like or whatever, these words, who did they come from? They came from the one who shepherds you. Do you receive the words from friends and people and others that you know care about you? you do. So you and I should embrace the words of Ecclesiastes and realize that they come from a shepherd. And there's thoughtfulness in there that pushes in there. So it's appropriate, just quickly, I want to run through two or three, three or four, actually maybe say, I don't, I don't remember how many, but just three or four summary, just like statements that, because notice what it says it does is that he weighed them, studied them, and arranged them. He put them in some order. There was thoughtfulness there in verse, in verse nine. He arranged these things. Let me arrange just a minute a few truths for you, just some that we can't talk, but I wanna remind you as we wrap up this book, here's a few of the key big points. And if you're visiting with us today, first time here, hope this will encourage you here. But here's a few of the things that we feel like Ecclesiastes was trying to say. First was this, is that don't bury your head in the sand and pretend like problems don't exist. Ecclesiastes makes you face the difficulties of the world. Oppression, evil governments, death. All kinds of things, time and chance that happen to us. Don't stick your hand and act like everything's hunky-dory. Don't stick your head in the sand. We have a tendency to do that, especially Southern Christians. You may not all be Southern. I'm a Southern Christian. That's my heritage. And we have everything's all okay. It's just not sometimes. Do you know that Jesus actually weeps with us when he's weeping? He weeps with us. He wept. When he wept, he was like, things aren't okay. There's death and there's pain and there's aging and there's disease. Please don't stick your head in the sand and act like it's not. Ecclesiastes moves us towards that. There's one bumper sticker I came across that said, work, eat, sleep, and then you die. That's what the world feels, by the way. Or this, a Jewish writer described life as a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. <laughs> That's terrible imagery, I know, right? Carl Sandburg, the American poet, compared life to an onion. You peel one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. Like, it's just kind of always happening. And Woody Allen said this. He said, who was the famous writer, producer, he said, I, real life, in real life, people disappoint you. They're cruel. Life is cruel. I think there's no win in life. Reality is a very painful, tough thing you have to learn and cope with in some way. What we do is escape into fantasy, and it does give us moments of relief. He just said, I just had to have fantasy and write things. I mean, so Christians don't let us function like things aren't going well, like the, the world's aware of that, and it's good for us to admit that. And the things that happen outside the church, they happen in the church too. 
And, the, and, the, and actually, by the way, the, the, the world messes up and sins, and so does that happen within the church. The only difference is that we have a king and a judge and we have Christ. That's our difference. So don't stick your head in the sand. Do a couple others. Face life honestly, but look at life from God's perspective. Remember that, that there's, um, there was this, this idea and struggle of the, the life under the sun and above the sun and, and above heaven and all that. But at the end of the day, don't, don't factor out God in your life. That's where this thing ends. Don't factor it out. Remember that he's king and judge. But live life honestly as you do that. Use God-given wisdom, but don't expect to solve every problem or answer every question. That was in there, and that's in our passage this morning. He's like, don't go look into all the books. Don't think that you can figure everything out. You can't, and it's okay. That doesn't mean God's any less true. That's part of what it means to live under his leadership and king, is that he has chosen not to reveal everything to us. He's revealed enough to us for life and godliness. We have to learn to live in that tension that we don't know all the why. We know where it's headed, we know where things are going, we know what the end will be like. In the meantime, we can't explain it all. Others, just enjoy the gifts of God that are penultimate, but not ultimate. Penultimate means the next to be an ultimate, the ultimate. The gifts of God, enjoy them. We'd looked at that for a long time, that gifts of God, receive his gifts, enjoy them, but don't look to them for your gain or your profit. The same as that. I... I didn't learn to enjoy sports for what it is. It was a struggle. And I learned, started to learn to it for my own gain in life, and now I still struggle with that. God's gifts are being enjoyed in relation to the giver. They're tastes. Don't run away from them. Use them. Enjoy them. Eat them. Drink them. Enjoy the gifts that God has. But remember the giver. That's been one we've looked at. And then the other is just that death is coming, so be prepared. That was the reality to face. And it's hard to face it in your youth, but it says be prepared for that. And the last one, we're not king, but the king, there is a king. And part of what Ecclesiastes reminds us is that one of your conclusions when you encounter these things that you don't know why and you encounter things that you realize you're not in power of and you see oppression that you can't change and you see circumstances that you can't fix no matter how hard you try, what you you learn is you're not king. But here's what also Ecclesiastes tells you, that he's a giver, that he's a shepherd, just. That's what it tells you as well. So, um, so don't, may, may that land on us well. And, and so when we, I think the tendency, and I've done it, and it's one, one wrong way to interpret it. Don't make this statement. Let me just say this. Don't say, well, everything's just vain. Nothing matters. Vanity of vanities, meaningless. That's not the point. <laughs> it is. That's not it. Everything's vain. No, everything's not vain. It feels vain. How we encountered it, but, but the Bible says otherwise. Everything matters. And it's okay to look at it and say, it just doesn't feel like walking up tomorrow and going to do this job that seems no menial matters. But in God's scope, it does. As an image bearer, and we would look at that later. So we've looked at that before. So then the transition, a couple of transitions here. That's the biggest point, the words, maybe. Uh, but we moved then to the transition. We look at the words uh, that he gave us and he packaged for us and that they goad us and, they, and that they also bring stability for us. Verse 11, notice this, the words of the wise are like goads. But there's a transition, and the transition happens there in verse 12. And I want to highlight there's a multiple transitions going on here at the end because 
It's sort of abrupt, like it's a sort of abrupt between verse 8, uh, which we didn't have this morning, the vanities of vanities, and he's talking about aging, where he kind of says what he stated from the beginning, and then this transition happens in verse, five, uh, verse 9. And um, notice that it says there in verse 12, you see the beginning, the first two words, my son. So one transition that is happening is that from verse 9 to 14, it's not much, but the author at this point is like pausing and saying, okay, now it's time to tell you, interpret a lot of that stuff that, the, that, the, uh, that we heard from the preacher. He's going to summarize it and make sure that his son understands it right. There's a transition. Now, there's lots of debate over who the writer is. As a matter of fact, some think that these last nine verses are what they call a, narrate, a narrator uh, or a frame narrator, meaning that someone started the book and st- finished the book. It could have been Solomon, and he let someone else do the teaching in the middle under his tutelage. And at the end, when he finishes, Solomon then trains his son. That's one. It could have been Solomon the whole time. It could have been someone with a persona of Solomon. It could have been multiple authors. I don't know. And actually, it's okay to not know. That doesn't change in the meeting, right? We have a weird relationship with certainty. We think we have to know certain everything in order to be uh, okay. That's not true. You're not even certain you're going to make it home today, and you're okay. We live with lots of uncertainty. But there is, what I want you to see here is that there is a transition from what has happened in the first 12 chapters up to verse 8 to here. And the transition is he's interpreting. He actually moves to the third person. And up to this point, it's been, ah, ah, and he says, now the preacher says this. And so there's a transition, and it's happening. It's important to see that, that he, there is some summarizing and, and, um, and putting things into perspective. And actually, when you think about that the last statement was that nothing matters, I think he's correcting with the person who has been writing for the 12 a little bit, saying, no, 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 all things matter. You see that? There's a transition. Another transition that's happening is that you'll notice uh, at this point, notice the shepherd, the name of God that is given there. And there's a new way that God's kind of being referred to in these last verses. There's a transition. Did you know this, that the word Elohim is the word that's used all throughout, the only word for God used in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. Elohim um, is basically the, the name, a common name that was used that meant like all-powerful, supreme authority for what God is and who he is, all right? Up to this point, what uh, the Elohim, it's interesting, the Elohim is not the other, it's not, is the word used, and Jehovah is not used in the Old Testament. Jehovah was the name of God's covenant people. Elohim could often be used by the general public as what they refer to God. Like, if you and I were to go out and to hear somebody just say, well, just give prayers to God or thanks to God, in general, most people would refer in, uh, to a God that's up there ruling and over the creator of the world. And Elohim was the one that was adopted by most people that day, particularly the Jewish people, or that those who were out, so that they were encountering. So Elohim, I know that's saying a lot, but there's a transition. I'm trying to point to this transition. Jehovah's not been used. Probably in the first 12 chapters, or the first 12 chapters up to this, it's been Elohim in a distance kind of general way, that it's not the God. He referring to God and kind of assent to God, but here it moves into the covenant kind of relationship. It's a deeper. So Elohim is used in verse 14 when it says to fear God, but now it's moved. The only way you would have been able to notice if someone really knew the difference between the Elohim they were using was how they talked and live according to this God. 
And so all of a sudden, it's moving. What I want you to feel here is these last five verses. It's moving from general God under the sun or all that, and it's moving into a more intimate understanding. This Elohim is also our shepherd, and this Elohim is also the one to be revered and honored. And so as he makes that transition, it's beautiful. And the last one, transition, um, is this. Um, is that the, uh, the other transition going on is I want you to see that that, that that language there, notice in verse 12, that the language he uses is this, is my son, be aware of anything beyond these of my many books that there is no end. I think that trans- there's a transition to kingship or to humility, and it's garden language. Do you see that? You remember the garden story was that I'm blessing you, and here's all these things, but I'm going to put a tree right in the middle of the garden that says you're not God, and remind you of that, that you can't handle all the knowledge in the world. I'm God, and you're not. And it's a, it's a transition that I think to humility. It is humility saying, listen, you can study, and I gave you all these words, but don't go overstudying. You can't figure everything out. Don't seek knowledge, which, by the way, I wonder what the writer would say about the Internet and the information and the data that we have. Like, he would say, you can't over, you can overextend. Don't think you can figure all this out. That's the same story of the garden. It's, it's, a, it's a transition to the end here of humility, that you're not king, that you're not God. Do you see that? And by the way, the baseline way to be, what is the most baseline fundamental thing that's true of a human being, one of the most baseline things, is that you and I are human beings and we're not kings. We're humbled. That was our relationship from the beginning, that we have humility and that we're not God and he's God and we're not. I mean, why do we say things like he needs a good dose of humble pie? Or why are some of the greatest stories in your life the fact that you were humbled by your sin or your failures or someone you came along who was better than you at something or whatever it was? Why is that? Why in that humility do you seem to see the best and understand the best, even point to that? You want to know why? Because you and I were made to live in humility. In humility in relation to God. He's God and we're not. Jesus Christ, what was he known for when he came? He humbled himself. His function as a, as a, Philippians 2 tells us, his function as a human being was in all humility. The fact that he became a humi- human being was humility. So that's probably the most important transition. He's transitioned them in, you're not king, he is. And so we get to the conclusion. And we flip to that, and the conclusion is this. That fear is not to be scared of. It is a reverence to it. It's not like, oh, no, i got to crawl under a chair. I'm not supposed to. He's out to get me. It is a fear. Um, it is a fear that is uh, more best said to be um, that we stand in how we stand in relation to him. It means taking him seriously, acknowledging him in our lives as his highest good. It means that we stop trying to be our own little gods and we stop trying to seek fulfillment in other things, that we decide, you know what, I can find fulfillment in sports or I can find it in missions or I can find fulfillment in, uh, in work or I can find fulfillment in my children. Stop being God and thinking you know where fulfillment comes from. It's, it's an awe of saying, no, fulfillment is found in you. 
Tim Keller says this, it means an inner state, an inner condition of awe and amazement and wonder before the magnitude and love and the power and the greatness of God. We start treating him like he's more real and more beautiful than anything else in the world. It's like a treasure hidden in the field. Mahalo life gets ordered around it. It's like the sun and the solar system. The sun doesn't go around us. We go around it. It's beauty and it's power and it's majesty as it orchestrates our life. That's what it means to be in awe of him. And then it says to obey his commands, which has always been central to that. And those who are in awe of him do obey his commands. His love does compel us. It does change people because they order their lives around it. Whatever you order your lives around is what affects how you behave. Your behavior reflects the affections of your heart. And then notice that beautiful land. It is that beautiful language there. It says, for this is the whole duty of man. You know that meaning, this is your, it feels like there's no meaning in the world. There is one, and it's to fear God. And one of the reasons why you can do it is because he'll judge the world and he's king. But fear him as the king. Worship him and his beauty. That Hebrew word there, it says all the word duty. So it reads literally that fearing uh, is not, uh, the Hebrew doesn't actually have the word duty in the Hebrew. It's not there. And listen to this. It's, it's literally the fearing of God and keeping his commandments is the whole of everyone. It actually literally reads to fear God is the whole of everyone. It's like the essence of being human is to obey God. Not like it's something to do. It's like that's who you are. Humans who are in right relation with him were made to be in awe of him and obey him. Garden. And that's where it lands. That's the conclusion. So we finish with what makes it so worthwhile. What, what, what about him as king and judge is so beautiful there's so many things, but I'll, I think where the passage takes us and where it lands us is that what we have here at the end, in verse 13 and 14, we have the convergence of king and judge. Those two things come together. There's a, there's a, a, a colliding, that he's king and he's ruling and you're not it, and, and you can't figure him out, and he's judge and he'll make all things, and those things kind of work together, and you bring it together where justice and his judgeship and, and what he will be executing and his kingship are all one. And by the way, that happened, there's a place where that happened as well for all of us. It happened at Calvary on the cross where God is king, orchestrated all things. He even told the Pontius Pilate, you, you think you're the one crucifying me, it's not you. You only have the power my Father gives me. And where justice comes, and what justice was served, the justice that was supposed to be given to us was given to Christ. Justice and kingship collide at the cross. And guess what? One day, justice and kingship will collide at the last judgment again. And when we get there, the judgment that was executed at the cross will be our hope. And the king, we stand before the king in his judgment. Listen, what's unbelievably beautiful about his kingship, to think about this, and you're like, well, why can't we skip the judgment side? Let's just move on. But in his kingship and his power and his profound wisdom, that even sin and even the things that seem like are going to bring death and destroy, somehow he flips them over. You're like, well, I want to skip the judgment. No, the judgment will be scary and be, be and be like, oh, my gosh, this is all true of me. And then Jesus will come in. And we will, he'll stand before the throne on our behalf, his record. And the fact that we felt the weight of our sin and our guilt and that everything that was, was under the sun was, was really truly seen by him, in that moment, we'll worship him all the more because of that sin. Isn't that crazy? That our sin actually has a worshipful end, 
a powerful end. He truly is king. Death no longer has its sting. The futility of this world, it's not futile, and it's going to a great place. The king and the, oh, Ecclesiastes, it finished with the king and judge colliding, which is our hope.